Welcome. You are about to enter the Wooniverse. In five, four, three, two, one. Transport complete. Come inside a mystical, magical portal between worlds. This could be a simulation that we're living in, you know, a world like the Matrix. Maybe everything's not quite as real and solid as it seems. Where playful curiosity leads the way and beyond. When you surrender to the crumbs and you follow the crumbs, guess what? Magic happens. Magic happens and it's easy. You won't believe the ahas that come up in every single conversation. Now what I'll do is I'll be like, oh, I'm one step closer to a yes. I can't wait to explore this in chanting space with you. And that's when life begins to manifest through you in ways that you could not imagine and plan. Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast coming to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine. Hi there, and welcome to Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast brought to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine. I'm your host, Colette Baron-Reed. Today, we are joined by the most awesome human. He is a prolific content creator. His name is Steve Pavlina. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about Steve. He's a leading personal development innovator, blogger, author, international speaker, and coach dedicated to helping people create extraordinary lives. Now, he has attracted, get this, more than 100 million visitors to his website. Uh, not too many, right? Mm-hmm. com, which hosts his over 1,800 articles on a broad range of self-development and personal growth topics. He's the creator of several groundbreaking personal growth courses and the author of powerful personal transformation books like Personal Development for Smart People. And like he is literally one of the smartest people I've ever met. And How to Get Things Done. Amazing books. Anyway, what you may not know is that before starting his world-famous personal development blog in 2004, Steve founded and ran an award-winning computer game development studio for a decade. In fact, he was even inducted into the Association of Software Professionals Hall of Fame. But he is truly a spiritual scientist, and I am so happy he's here with us today. Welcome to the Wooniverse, Steve. Thanks so much, Colette. Happy to be here. Oh, it's so exciting. I actually met Steve when I first got to Hay House. Steve was already a Hay House author, and he was super awesome. I met him at a function at Hay House, and I always knew that he was really interesting. And now together, we're both in this Transformational Leadership Council, and I fell in love with his wife. And he's so interesting. As soon as he posts in our special room, I'm like, what did he say? What did he say? So I thought, I got to have him on the show. Anyway, let's dig in, Steve. We ready? Yep, we're ready. Let's do it. Awesome. You know what? Here's what I want to do, because I'm interested in your spiritual viewpoint. Were you curious about spirituality or the spirit in all things when you were little? Not so much about spirituality, because I was raised inside a bit of a spiritual box, 12 years of Catholic school growing up. Oh, yeah. So that would be a no. (laughs) That's all I knew. You know, all my friends were Catholic. It's like a whole family was Catholic. Uh, my uncle was a Catholic priest. My dad, oh. you know, was an altar boy when he was younger. We went to church every Sunday, okay. religiously, literally. <laughs> All right. So it, it was it, it was a box, you know, in which uh, the only spirituality I knew was, you know, what was taught by priests and nuns, and you know, the whole religious container. Uh, but it was maybe around the time I was, I think, I was seventeen years old, and I started having doubts about it. You know, I was getting, I was getting more into, I went to a Jesuit high school, Loyola High School in Los Angeles, 
and they were more flexible than uh, than the nuns at Notre Dame Academy that I went to right. uh, for grammar school growing up in L.A. And I liked that they encouraged us to think for ourselves, and we had some late as well. And it kind of helped to open my mind more. I got into like more mathematics and physics, uh, excelled in those types of classes, um, got interested in computer programming from a f- fairly young age. I got introduced to you know, basic programming when I was 10 years old. Wow. So I had that as like kind of a contrasting thread. You know, here's all this, you know, tech I'm learning and how to program and thinking algorithmically. And then how does that mesh with faith? You know, which to me was kind of like blind faith. Right. And so it's like these two contrasting threads in my life developing. And I found I was way more interested in the tech side because it seemed so open-ended and it seemed so creative. Whereas the other side was just, don't do this. Don't do that. This yeah. is a sin. That's a sin. You're bad. You're a sinner. You need to seek forgiveness. You have to go to confession. And we're making the assumption too that religion is spirituality, which it's not. Yeah. Right. So, which we know. Okay. So let's keep going. But, okay. But that was my assumption at the time. Yeah. Like me too. Spirituality equaled religion, and I knew nothing else. So I only knew of two spiritual paths, which were really Catholicism or atheism. And it's like either you believe in God, that God, and you believe and you follow all the rules and the dictates, the mandates, and so on, the dogma, or you are outside of that, which is nothingness. It's the void. It's atheism. I was never exposed to any, you know, new agey uh, philosophies, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, <laughs> anything. Right, anyism. Anything, anything <laughs> in any other direction was just not part of my reality at the time. It was like being, you know, very much raised inside of a bit of a thought bubble. And so the only real escape path was through logic and thinking. And I remember at one point I saw this talk show that just happened to be on the, you know, running on the TV. I think, you know, my mom would sometimes watch uh, talk shows back then, like Phil Donahue. I remember it was oh, one. yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch sometimes. And I think one of the guests, I don't know if it was Donahue, it might have been, but one of the guests was this woman who had founded this uh, organization called, I think it was called American Atheists. And oh. she, w- she, she was making some cases, you know, some arguments, and I thought, that sounds kind of interesting. Uh, and so I, I learned that they had a magazine. And so I subscribed to it when I was like a teenager. And I'll tell you, I don't think I got all the issues. <laughs> I had to get to the mail before, you know, anyone else in my family did. <laughs> oh my God, that's right. <laughs> but then I, I could, you know, if I got it, if I got it, then I could start reading it and get curious about it. And, you know, at one point I told my family that I was, I was, just, I didn't believe that stuff anymore. And that right. I was kind of an atheist. Uh, at least that's where my leaning was, you know, where my leanings were. And I, I got punished for that. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's not, not good. And in fact, you know, it was a point where they, they didn't know what to do with me. Like, do you, you know, do we ground you or what? And so then I'm like, great, I'm losing privileges now. So I basically just kind of backed down <laughs> and, you know. Um, Self-preservation. Backed, backed off from that, kept going to church. But, um, you know, but then it got to the point where I, I would sit in the back of the church. My parents liked to sit in the front. So I would be like, I want to sit in the back. And they were, you know, like, okay, re- you can have that bit of rebellion. But then I would sneak out the back, go for a walk. And then come back to the church, <laughs> like right before it ended. And then we would all go to the car together. Um, right. And as I go for a walk, I just ponder and think about life. Um, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I actually, I'm a vegan now, but back then I wasn't. So sometimes I actually go to a McDonald's near the church and have a right. little breakfast and then come, <laughs> come back. And that uh, eventually that came to a head because one time I think it was Palm Sunday. And usually they would have extra long masses on Palm Sunday. So I'm like, okay, I got extra time because it's more complex ceremony. So I go for a longer walk. And as I'm coming back, I see the church has already exited. Everybody's going to the cars right now. I'm like, oh, shoot. 
and so as I'm walking down the street, my parents see me. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. And, and they, even before I get there, they get in the, they all get in the car and drive off as a way to maybe punish me. Now we lived uh, just a couple miles from the church. So it was a bit of, you know, a bit of a walk back, but we would go to church early in the morning, you know, like 7.30 AM, something like that. So I just decided I'm just going to stay out all day. And so I had a little bit of money on me. I walked all around. I went out to see a movie. Uh, I remember the movie I saw was Bird on a Wire with uh, Mel Gibson and Goldie Hawn. Right. <laughs> so that probably oh my God, that's going little, way back. Way back, yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> then I finally come home around, I don't know, 10 p.m. to midnight, something in that range. And then it, it was like weird um, because I never went to church again after that. Like they never really tried to pressure me. They kind of, it was like a way of finally getting free from that. And, and that led to finally opening up. I, I went into atheism for a while, explored that, but it really opened the door. That was my exit. Sure. And then as I went to college and moved out, I got to explore all kinds of other you know, possibilities. I went to UC Berkeley for a while, so I got to meet all kinds of interesting people there. That exposed me to new, you know, new ideas, new philosophies, new ways of thinking. And then it just opened me up to exploration. And I always remembered just how you know, how you can feel like you understand reality when you're inside this thought bubble, right. how much more there is, how much more is possible when we move outside of that. So I kept using that same kind of thinking, like questioning, am I in a thought bubble now? Am I stuck in um, a world of assumptions that don't have to be true or that aren't really true, but by thinking they're true, I'm caging myself and I'm right. ruling out all kinds of other possibilities. And I've seen that that kind of thing happen in my life multiple times where I have to keep creating cracks in how I think yeah. about reality. And that's, that's actually the, the main purpose of metaphysics is exactly what you're talking about. You know, is that the, the deep questions are, what is this? Where am I? Am I in this thought bubble? Where, am I only in the conditioned thinking bubble? But what else could there be? Because there are so many different dimensions to reality. Now, I happen to know you think like that because I know you, right? So I'm curious to know. So you, you went there. Now, I know your first wife was a psychic medium. Yep. And so your college degrees are in computer science. You were in gaming. And then you were married to this woman who was a psychic medium. So you really, really lived at the corner of Fringe and Maine for a yeah, while, right? Yeah. We, um, in fact, we met, um, we met on an online uh, BBS, a bulletin board system, kind of a precursor for an online chat group type of thing. It was just a local dial-up, you know, dial-up modems oh, wow. uh, bulletin board system that attracted people from the San Fernando Valley. Um, and a couple of my friends from college, you know, turned me onto that system. And so I would dial up. It was called uh, Dreamscape BBS. <laughs> wow. Interesting name. And uh, through that, I met you know, some interesting people. I, I met Erin and it turned out she only lived like six miles away. And we went to the same college. Uh, during that time, I, you know, I just graduated from Cal State University, Northridge. And we got to talking online. We got to connecting. And I realized she knew, she knew a lot about a lot of things I was curious about. One was lucid dreaming. Right. I was, I, I, she could, she was like really skilled at lucid dreaming. She'd done it from a young age. And so I invited her over to my apartment just to chat about it. And so she came over and we talked for like two hours. And I had this like long list of questions. It was, <laughs> I was just like very <laughs> mentally curious. Um, and right. that became, you know, kind of like something that leaned into connection because I found her a very like mind expanding person to connect with. Uh, right. Really, she just knew so much about certain things. She, she grew up Jewish, but also, you know, had a very new agey uh, kind of um, belief system. And 
it just opened me up to so many different kinds of possibilities. So this is interesting. So would we say that now you're looking at this being consciousness expanding as opposed to, because I do think too, even the labels of new age, right? Which is what was was bringing all the old stuff forward and kind of mushing it together and trying to find answers. Again, the idea of the metaphysical world, which is to ask those bigger questions. Um, but it really is about expanding your consciousness. Now, I happen to know recently you went to one of these conferences. So I was curious about that because what do you think the relationship is to... Um, like, for example, now psilocybin research, ketamine, all of those those mind-expanding drugs, which can actually lead us to a greater spiritual understanding of life. Tell me a little bit about your view on that today. Yeah, well, that was one of the things I, you know, when I grew up, it was always like, you know, in the bubble of the war on drugs. And right. Like, all, all drugs are bad. Um, and some drugs I, you know, would just not touch. I've never done yeah. cocaine or heroin. I've never smoked a, a cigarette. Um, mm -hmm. other than like marijuana a few times because I wasn't really, I didn't really like the idea of doing that stuff for entertainment. Yeah, I get um, it. Uh -huh. you know, or, and I, and I'm, I don't want to get addicted. <laughs> anything. Right. I don't think that's good lifestyle wise. Um, I know somebody who got very addicted to cocaine and it was whew, really downhill. Well, uh, I'm clean and, and sober 37 and a half <laughs> years. So I know that very well. Yep. So yes, I, I get it. But you so, were not like that. So you were, you know, that the idea that there is some connection to something greater than us. Um, yes. I'm so, curious what you think of that. I look at that and I kind of balance the risks and I try, what I try to do is when I lean into something, I educate myself on it first. I do, I, I tend to be a fast learner. So I like to read and I'll just, you know, especially with access to the internet, which is just amazing because I didn't really grow up with that. And so right. now that I have that as an adult, it just feels awesome to be able to like look up anything and research it and do, you know, deep dives intellectually into something. And I can learn so much about something before I even, you know, actually act on it or engage with it. Right. So I, I've done that with certain things. Um, you know, first, and then I start learn, learning that a lot of what I was taught growing up is not really true. Um, as it's being studied today by scientists and things, uh, that was one of the things at the, the conference, which was called uh, Psychedelic Science 2023. It was the largest right. psychedelics conference in the history of the planet, apparently. 12,000 people there. Isn't that uh, amazing? Five, about 500 speakers and, you know, including some celebrities. It was really amazing. But, you know, for me, the, the actual action of the journey started a bit earlier, doing a four-day ayahuasca ceremony. Um, in uh, Costa Rica. Uh -huh. And I'd never done, you know, psychedelics before. So that was like an immediate, really intense deep dive, you know, four, uh, four ceremonies in four nights. And we were there for a total of a week. And then, so we, we did some integration work afterwards. Uh, and that was like really, really uh, mind-blowing. Like the first night, just so intense physically, emotionally, you know, going on this visual journey. And, uh, you know, thought I was going to die at first. <laughs> I was like, this is really intense. Uh, thought I was going to stop breathing, but then I got my breathing under control and it was just such a new experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the next three nights were actually pretty pleasant and I learned to sort of create a relationship with that energy and dialogue with it. And it's, it's weird. It's like this consciousness you're connecting with through that. Yes, that's what I want to hear. I, so again, we're not, just want to make everybody clear that we are not suggesting that y'all should go out and do ayahuasca. This is, this is Steve's experience where we want to go with the conversation is tell me about that relationship to that consciousness because these types of earth medicines can actually open us up to this. So I'm curious to hear, now I can't take it, nor would I, but you did and could. And so I'm curious about this dialogue because it's going to lead us into another conversation after we talk about this. So, Sure. 
So like on the, on the medical side and the science side, what they're discovering is if we look inside the brain and, you know, they do brain scans now while people are doing psychedelics and they can see what's happening. And apparently there's this functional part of the brain they call the default mode network. It's kind of like our default every way mode of thinking. Right. And it suppresses a lot of possibilities. It keeps us kind of focused on our physical reality around us. Um, and to some extent, you know, it allows us to focus on our work and our relationships and is very much at the human level. Well, what many psychedelics can do, and many of them operate in similar ways, like LSD, psilocybin, uh, MDMA, ketamine, they can actually relax or pause that default mode network. And so they make your thinking and your neural connections more flexible. So what happens is regions of the brain that don't normally talk much to each other, now they start communicating. Uh, it creates, it kind of opens up the pathways in the flow. So when you're in that state, you become more open and more receptive. And that, I think, is what really links us into like being aware of other consciousness, you know, some kind of other communication, other consciousness coming through. People describe that experience in multiple ways. Some describe it as, as God. Some describe it as divinity or other, yep. you know, other words. One of the common ones is ultimate reality. People describe this as a connection to ultimate reality. And then the scientists were curious. Why are some people defining, you know, finding this as God or others are defining it as ultimate reality? And they're using, you know, several different labels for this were pretty common. So they asked the people to describe the qualities of each of these. Right. Like, what, are, what are the qualities of God? What are the qualities of ultimate reality? Well, you know, and it turned out the words they use, like the top, say, five or six adjectives they used to describe these were all the same. <laughs> tell so, me. Tell me about them. What are the words? I'm trying to recall some of them, but it was like kind of like uh, compassion, um, unconditional love, uh, sort of a, a gentleness to it. Uh, that ultimate reality is very loving. It's very supportive. It's not, it's non-judgmental. And it's a partner. Um, exactly, yeah. See, I really think that since the beginning of time, human beings have actually had these experiences that you're describing and tried to explain it. And then they created systems around it that then became these dogmatic, rule-based, you know, controlling things that don't really work. They're not there to, to really genuinely connect us to ultimate reality. But I do believe that, that was their initial hope. You know what I'm saying? Like that, I think that that was it. Okay, so what does this ultimate reality want for us? You know, how do we have a relationship with that? And then it's like, well, how do I control the planet? Kind of at the end of the day, right? So, um, and I'm not here to bash religion, but we do know that ultimate reality, even when we talk about Jesus, for example, or Christ, um, you know, the Christ consciousness is exactly what people describe. So that's why they call these things God, why we think of ultimate reality as a partner in co-creation. So what did you feel like when you touched that or when you connected to that? It feels, uh, it feels like a sense of oneness. It kind of felt like I was in communication with something that was inside me at the time. Like, there's not a separation from it. Like, with ayahuasca in particular, it was like the, the plant medicine was in my brain, in my mind. And initially, like, maybe the first hour or two of each session, it felt like it was trying to calibrate to communicating with me. And that's where it's physically roughest. People purge during that time. Uh, I purged, you know, a number of times. And right. it's, it's, yeah. it's rough on the body, um, right. at least initially. And then it kind of settles down into something right. that feels very gentle and smooth, at least that did for me. I mean, people, of course, can have bad trips, but most of the time people even right. have a bad trip, they actually describe it as a good experience and beneficial for them 
afterwards with the insights they gained from it. So, yeah. It's, it's interesting that you said you're having this communication with something inside you when it came to, uh, like, okay, so I had the weirdest experience. I was doing a reading for this woman. This is when I still did uh, one-on-one sessions. And so she was calling from Germany and I kept tuning into an energy that I felt was her grandmother that spoke Spanish. So, so this is so crazy. And I, and she wasn't very nice. And I smelt like, I smelt earth in my house. I was like, oh man, this woman is like nasty. And then I'm like, but then I was like, but she, she likes me. So I'm supposed to tell this woman that she didn't do the work she was supposed to do. And she's supposed to go visit her in South America. I said, your grandmother is asking for you to visit her. And I really don't know what I'm talking about. And, but she's kind of angry at you that you didn't, apparently you spent some time with her and you did not uh, do what was what was called what you were called to do as a result of the visit and she goes I don't know what you're talking about I don't have a Spanish grandmother and I'm like well and then I kept hearing it and I said look I'm sorry you know you don't have to pay me I'll give you your money back but I can't keep going because this is so clear and she went oh and then I described to her I'm not going to say it but the detail which is this this energy and I felt this energy that was so like weird and present and it knew me. Like it felt like it was trying to figure out how to communicate with me. Well, it turned out she went for an ayahuasca ceremony and they called it the grandmother. Hmm. I've heard it referred to as mother right? Aya, or mother ayahuasca many times. Mother, yeah, the grandmother. Well, in her, and apparently the you know the people that she worked with, and she was a, she was actually a psychologist and had gone there, and this this was an issue that she had been suppressed or repressed. And I just thought, and it actually kind of scared me, <laughs> because I actually felt this energy trying to figure me out. How could it talk to me, right? And that is that is freaky. <laughs> so that is because, but it what it does though for me anyway, you know, and and maybe you're first wife uh, described this to you, but we, if we are one, and if we are in fact part of a unified field of consciousness, then that makes sense as to why mediums and psychics can do what we do. You know, we have access. We just have a kind of a natural entry point that everybody actually has, you know, but because of our conditioning and like you said, because the brain isn't, those pieces aren't speaking to each other, you know, that we don't have access to that. But what if ultimate reality was that we were surrounded by different forms of consciousness that were there to actually help us. And that is what I believe. You know, I know people talk about spirit guides and stuff like that. I personally have only had a few experiences that way. So I don't, you know, I'm just like, wow, that's so cool. You have that experience. You're talking to something that, you know, me, I had one experience where there was a chorus. And what about you? Have you ever had anything like that beyond you know, doing this, this, this particular entry point? Absolutely. Psychedelics are just one of many entry points. They're, let's, let's hear. They're a shortcut. You know, they can kind of get you there fast, right. um, give you an intense experience that you have may take a, quite a while, maybe months, even years to reflect upon. But there are other ways. And one of them I would say is social. Hang out with people who are more open-minded than you. Hang out with people who've had diverse experiences. So, for instance, going to the Hay House conferences, the I Can Do It conference, right. uh, where we met. Yeah. Um, when I went to that conference, you know, I would go to you know these sessions on angel readings, uh, you know, with Dorian Virtue and you know other uh, past life regression, and you know just have a wide variety of types of experiences. And I find that just leaning into open-mindedness is super, super helpful because it gets you in a space where you're connecting with other people's energy that is also open 
and right. all, you know, also very open-minded. It's very different than, say, going to a tech conference where the energy is very closed. Uh, it's very boxed in. At least that's right. how it feels. There's sort of openness, you know, in certain directions like entrepreneurial or, you know, tech tech directions. But you try talking about spirituality there, it's probably not going to, you know, open so many doors <laughs> for you. Um, right. I get it. And so just being in that space, being in that environment, you can get a lot of clarity. You can get downloads. You can get messages coming. In fact, it was the first Hay House conference I went to, I think it was back in 2004, which got me on the path of going into personal development. Um, I'd been running in my computer games business for about 10 years, and I was feeling it just wasn't the path with a heart for me anymore. It was my dream in my 20s, and I got to experience that and do it for a while. But then in my 30s, I was starting to think, you know— uh, I want to do something more purposeful in life. I, what could that be? I don't want to just keep creating entertainment software for people. Uh, and so it felt like um, I, need, I needed to shift in some direction, but I wasn't sure what. But I'd been thinking about maybe starting some kind of personal development business. And when I, when I went to um, the Hay House Conference, which was here in Vegas where I live, it was just kind of on a whim, just like an intuitive thing. Oh, there's this conference here. That sounds kind of cool. Right. Uh, it was my fir first year living in Vegas, and I thought, yeah, I'll go to that. So I, I signed up, and I just went, and I kind of blogged about the experience a little bit as I was— or no, wait, I didn't blog about the experience because I hadn't started my blog yet. Uh, that was that was at a future way. Right, Yeah. it was right so after. So what happened is I, I, I remember <laughs> sitting in this uh, big auditorium— uh, I think it was at the Cashman Center in downtown Vegas area, and I saw Dr. Wayne Dyer speak there. And I was sitting kind of in the middle of this room, maybe about 1,500 people there, if I had to guess. And I'm like right in the middle of this big auditorium, and I'm surrounded by this really loving energy. And he was talking about the power of intention. And it's not so much his words that were impacting me, but just his energy and the energy of the whole room, I just started crying. And I didn't really know why. It was just like this intense emotion welling up. And I had this really strong feeling internally, like this download. I'm supposed to be doing that. Like what he's doing, I'm supposed to be like that guy on the stage. Um, and yeah. I just had this feeling like I need to get into this. Um, I need to get into this space. It was like, it was that social environment that opened the door. It was those mm -hmm. people, their energy. I thought, this is such a beautiful, loving, you know, clear, open energy. I got to have more of this in my life. It was a peak experience. And I thought, what would my life be like if that was like my normal reality? Could I do that? And I thought, why not? Maybe it'll take some time, but yeah. And I thought, I got to leave the game developer space behind because it just wasn't resonating as much. So I started transitioning. It took me like six months or so to really get into it because I really just, I, it was too much of a peak experience. I couldn't integrate it right away. I needed time to process it. Right. I need, it almost like I needed time yeah. to grieve the loss of the old reality, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. <laughs> so, yes, it does. Keep yeah, going. So yeah. That, was, that was rough, you know, like looking at my game projects and saying, there's no heart in this but I still felt like I'm obligated to keep it going, you know, like shutting it yeah. down. And that was, it was tough. So I did it as gracefully as I could. Um, and, you know, some other people were relying on my business for income because I had licensed other developers' games and I was selling them. So I gave that business like a two-year timeline to shut it down. Uh, I stopped doing new marketing. I stopped doing new releases for it. But I kept selling and supporting the developers' games. Uh, that way I could have some income coming in still and have time to get into uh, blogging. So I, the same year I started my blog, I also joined Toastmasters, actually a bit before I, I you know, did my, uh, started my blog, uh, both in 2004. And then I got into just, you know, writing and speaking, gradually rolling into it. Uh, and here's the funny thing. A few years later, I think three years later, in uh, 2007, I, 
well, I kept going to that Hay House conference each time it came to Vegas. And so I started, I did a review of it for my website. I I just went, you know, just as a regular attendee, but I wrote up about the experience of my blog. Well, that got to Hay House's attention because some of their staff started reading my blog. Right. And so they they told- Yeah, you got a book deal because of it. Exactly. They told Reed Tracy about it. And uh, he reached out to me and says, hey, I'm going to, you know, we're coming to Vegas again for the next I Can't Do It conference one year. And he's like, "Um, you know, I'd love to meet with you. So he, you know, we met up. Uh, I remember it was at the Venetian Hotel. We just sat in the food. Yes, I was there. <laughs> sat in the food court there. <laughs> I was there. And we, um, you know, he, he, we just talked for like a half hour, but he said something like, you know, we at Hay House know about your blog and we like your writing and you have some fans on our staff. And so if you want a book deal, just let me know and I'll green light it. And I was like, Sure, I thought I thought I thought about writing the book, um, and so I ended up, you know, writing the book "Personal Development for Smart People." It took me about ninety days to write it, and then wow, it's really good. It's still really good. It's still, still telling. So they they, they got it and <laughs> no, translated it in a bunch of different languages. Um, it came out in two thousand eight, but because of that, I got invited to speak at the Hay House Conference a couple times. Once in Vegas, uh, where I live, and once in Tampa. Yeah, and so it's funny because three years later, roughly. When I was from sitting in that audience watching Dr. Wayne Dyer, I was actually speaking not mm-hmm. on the physically same stage, but on a similar stage in the same city, uh, speaking yeah. to an audience there. And I told that story to open my talk. And the audience, there maybe 200, I was not speaking to as big a room as Dr. Wayne Dyer's was. I was in one of the breakout sessions. So I spoke to maybe a couple hundred people yeah. and they loved it. They just loved that, you know, going from an audience member to, you know, being on the stage and this being on this path with a heart. And then that just kept unfolding and it kept rolling forward with, um, I don't know, so much abundance coming through, you know, so many different kinds of invitations. In fact, Reed Tracy and I ended up in a mastermind group a few years ago together. That was kind of fun. Right. Um, Just so much unfolding synchronistically. And it was not really, it didn't feel like I was doing this in an algorithmic way, like step by step. Here's my goal. I'm going to chip away at it. Here's the process. Here's the action steps. Not at all. Because like the book, the book deal came to me out of the blue. I, I never, you know, solicited a book deal from anybody. So I got a book deal with zero, you know, rejections. I just like, here's the, here's the deal. I had a book deal before I even had the concept for the book. So I kept having that kind of experience where things were just manifesting, you know, with relative ease. From the intention, from that one intention, when you had a peak experience in a group where the consciousness was there, right? When two or more are gathered in my name, there I am, right? And so the I am presence, I believe that right there, heard you. Now it's making it happen. Yep. I see that pattern showing up again and again in my life when I try to think too linearly, too much like, you know, in a business mode or physical mode, life just slows down. It's very sluggish. It doesn't really progress that quickly. But then the magic starts happening when you open up and you think about the energetic threads that connect us. And you, and I often think, like for writing, I never get writer's block. And one of the reasons is I think I think of writing to people's energies. Right. Uh, even when, this is something I learned from um, Barbara DeAngelis. Uh, I met her at a conference oh. many years ago. In fact, I think it was that first year I was just getting into Toastmasters and just about, or maybe just starting my blog. And I went to a conference in Vegas also, and I saw her, I was going to, she was one of the people I wanted to see speak there. I remember Steve, Stephen Covey was also speaking there. Yeah, uh, Jack Canfield was also speaking there. And I didn't know any of them. But one, I was, as I was walking through the conference center, I think one morning I saw Barbara and an assistant of hers setting up her book table. And I thought, and this, you know, in, in, intuitive impulse says, you know, go talk to her. And then, of course, my objection is, well, who am I to talk to her? You know, she doesn't know me. Right, yep. But I'm like, 
you know, I always, I always try to lean into courage whenever I get that. I'm like, whenever I have those decisions to make, like, are you going to make this decision based on fear or based on, you know, trust, courage? I'm like, uh, damn it. I have, to, <laughs> I have to do this now. So I go, I go talk to her. And unfortunately she was very friendly. And I, you know, I was just telling her where I was in life and saying, I'm just kind of transitioning to getting into the field of personal development, just getting to speaking and blogging and writing. And I asked her if she had any advice for me yeah. since she had way more experience than that. She was a, you know, author and speaker. Yeah. And she said, she said, yeah, when she started out, um, she started, you know, she started doing like meditation workshops and she said, sometimes only one person would show up and part of her would be heartbroken. you know, like, nobody wants, yeah. to, nobody wants to hear me. Nobody, you know, values my message. But then she thought, maybe this is important. Maybe I have to learn how to speak to one person. Oh, wow. And she said that was, she said that was super valuable for her. So she gave that one person who showed up the best meditation workshop she could. And she said, that really stayed with her. And she said, you know, at this event, she was speaking to maybe 2,500 people. And she said, if you can't speak to one person, you can't speak to 2,500. You know, you, wow. that it's all about the individual communication. And I really took that to heart. And I kind of infused that mindset into my writing and speaking. So whenever I would speak to a group or write for an online audience, I would always think, who is the one person that I'm writing for? Now, it doesn't have to be a specific person, but it's kind of like, What's their energy pattern? I'm trying to lock on to the energy pattern. Mm -hmm. Is it someone maybe who's got a, you know, kind of young, maybe in their 20s, they're you know, recently graduated from school, they're struggling to get their career going. You know, I kind of form a mental model of them and that helps me lock mm -hmm. on to what their vibrational signature is, you know, if you will. And then when I get a sense of a lock on to their energy, I, I write for that one person, that one individual spirit. Right, in a, way. a spirit, exactly. And that's what's weird. That's what actually grows the traffic and helps it resonate with a larger audience is you just write for one person. I love that. You don't have to know the person. You no. know, it's just a, a, a sense of their energy. So I feel like that's actually something real. Like I feel people's energies are pinging me, yeah. you know, and, and like they're sending me a signal, I need help. And I'm picking, I'm like kind of scanning, you know, in a certain frequency range with my mind or my energy. And I'm picking up on who can I help today? And I, I kind of lock onto one energy pattern and then I say, I'm going to help you today. And that's how I write. Right. I love that. And that actually also underlines the experience that you'd had about that unified consciousness, right? It, it's like everything exists. We're all connected. But that one strand that lights up for you in that moment, that, that's so interesting because then you know exactly what you have to do. Okay, we have to take a little pause. More with Steve Pavlina when we come back. Don't go anywhere. And we're back with Steve Pavlina. So Steve, my next question is, you also recently, because you've been writing a lot about AI. So um, I'm going to ask you a question about that because I believe in the unified field. I believe in unified consciousness. I believe that we are all interconnected. And I do believe that there is a spirit in all things. I believe that. So I'm an animist. I, and I've seen evidence of this. So AI is now at the tip of everybody's tongue. And by the time people hear this, maybe it has changed again. So, but up until now, you've been doing a lot of discovering around AI. So tell me about AI and consciousness, spirituality, ethics, AI, consciousness. Let's go down that rabbit hole together. Sure. Um, in fact, this, this actually ties in with something I um, learned at the psychedelics conference. Sure. So one of the studies that I learned about was 
Uh, some group studied having people rate, you know, say before a psychedelic experience, how conscious are certain aspects of reality? Like how conscious are you on a numerical scale, like rating on a scale of one to 10? How conscious are you? How conscious are other people? How conscious are animals or right. plants or, um, you know, yeah. inanimate objects and so on? So it goes from like, you, you know, you to other humans all the way down to inanimate objects like rocks and stuff. Right. And so it's basically kind of as you expect. People would rate themselves as the most conscious and then it's, you know, pretty pretty close, a little bit lower for other people because <laughs> they're not sure. And zero for and rocks. Then, and then it kind of gets kind of low, but, you know, well, the average rating was above zero, so it's kind of averaging it together. Right. Okay. Some people rate rocks as a little bit conscious, but definitely rocks were lower. <laughs> and, right. And so, um, and in fact, they rated man-made, you know, so there's like a, a, a I forget what which was higher. I think uh, nature objects were higher than man-made objects. Right. You know, so, okay. So it it's kind of interesting how um, when after they did psychedelics, everything moved up a bit. Right. Everything moved up a notch. And it's funny because even some people doubted their own consciousness, but they doubted right. it less after having a psychedelic experience. So everything raised in consciousness. Now I think that's that's interesting because it shows that there's flexibility there in our perceptions. And I think we can also consider that a choice. So in looking at AI in particular, we can choose to see it as, look, this is just an algorithm. It's just churning numbers. It's like a, you know, a black box with the, you know, you don't know, really know what it's doing inside. There's no consciousness to it. Mm-hmm. You, know, you could look at it sort of like, you know, certain philosophers' models and just say, it's just, you know, number crunching. It's just calculations. There's yeah, no, I don't believe there's that. no consciousness to it. <laughs> Now, if you use, uh, I think what the more interesting thing here is not to ask which is true, you know, like, does it have a consciousness or does it not, but actually test both possibilities. Right. So I always look at the experiential, you know, mode of life and think of, I could test this way of thinking and I could test this way of thinking. Let me see which is better. So I test and like, let me interact with it like it's lifeless. It's a little boring, the interactions. Now let me act, interact with it like it's an, a conscious being or an intelligence. Yeah. I communicate with it differently. And I get, and I sense a different kind of communication style with it. And it's more fun. It's more engaging. I get better results. So I don't know if it's conscious or not, but I do know that if I consider and entertain the possibility that it may be conscious, I'm going to have a better experience with it. I will get more insights out of it. Same thing with interacting with other people. I could see them as, you know, they're simulations, they're automatons, they're robots, they have no consciousness. Or I could see them as full of you know, energy and consciousness and interacting with them on that basis. And the interactions will turn out very differently based on that. And isn't it, so if we, let's go back to your first experience, your peak experience with Wayne Dyer, which Wayne was talking about the power of intention. So would you say that that power of your intention will actually shift the way in which you engage whatever it is you're engaging with, but also offer it, you know what I mean, a, a greater capacity to show up, right? Because when when we project a limitation on someone else, they can't show up any differently, really, because we can't perceive it. We've we've already made a decision, right? That's what that whole condition me- bubble you were talking about earlier. We, we have a tremendous limitation imposed upon us also by what we expect to see. So if you're expecting to engage out of curiosity, right? Rather, rather like you said, it's not binary. It's not like yes or no. It's I wonder, right? Let's see and see what happens. And then you, it's almost like you give it permission to be more. And that again, right? There's that mirror effect. Yep. I think we need to spend way more time wandering into wonder, you know, like, like like wonder more and let our minds wander more uh, with openness and with curiosity. Because when we think we know 
how life works, how reality works, that becomes our reality. You know, we box yeah. we box ourselves in and we rule out other possibilities. And some of those possibilities could be amazing, like, you know, a stunningly compatible new relationship partner flowing into your life, uh, a bun, you know, a financial windfall, a, a, you know, abundance of opportunities, uh, a great new friend or new social group flowing into your life, mm-hmm. amazing travel adventures just showing up like an invitation comes through. And just, you know, so much can flow through when we open ourselves, but... You know, I think a lot of people t- tend to be more risk averse and they're worried about like, well, if I open myself more than some bad and unpleasant experiences will come through. Well, I think that's also because we've been exposed to so much sustained uncertainty, right? And I think that right now more than ever, like, you know, certainly in this in this past few years, everything feels like it's accelerated, but people's need for certainty is so much greater now. Hence why I think we have such that, you know, the, the outrage culture, like, no, you're going to change it. Like, no, you're different. No, 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 no. Right. So you have all of this, no. And then you have, when we look at media, we see that we only look at, like, we're only being served, basically, the content that tells us the world is going to pot, right? So then there's more fear, there's more need for the, you know, for us to be running our lives through the amygdala, right? So you've got the stress response. And and so consequently, there is, it's very difficult to be curious and open and wandering into wonder when we're still, you know, searching for potential threats. So I think we have to really look at that because we can't say we want something better or new or different if we don't take the steps ourselves to calm down, you know what I mean? And allow ourselves to be open, which is a discipline. Yep. And, uh, you know, another way of thinking of this could be that all thought is intention. Yes. Um, so, you know, your your expectations, your beliefs, your assumptions, um, you know, I, I like to tell people that all thought is intention. And so then, like, even observation is intention, especially yeah. observation yes. with an assignment of meaning, because we don't necessarily observe neutrally. We observe with uh, filtering. And so that becomes part of the intention too. So let's say, you know, let's say you want to stay safe and you're looking at a situation and you're thinking about the risks, the potential dangers. I do see that as becoming part of the intention. But then what you can do right. is unpack that a little bit and say, well, what do I really want here? And it's fun. And then you can say, well, I don't necessarily want to assume that I'm going to run into problems because then that becomes kind of attraction, <laughs> you know, vibe right. that you're putting out there for, for problems. But what you can do is say, I want to feel safe. I want to feel secure. So like, you know, I remember with, um, say, the uh, ayahuasca journey, I learned that, you know, the first first day was really rough physically. And then I learned I could actually put some intentionality into that instead of having the expectation it would be rough physically like it was the first night. I just kept saying, gentle, gentle, gentle. I said, you can give me intense experiences mentally and emotionally, but please go gentle on the body. Like my body. body, be gentle on my physical body. Anymore. No, I was okay. I was okay <laughs> with that, but like, don't make me feel like I'm gonna die. Maybe not. Maybe right. not. My heart racing, you know, like it's beating <laughs> out of my chest. So, and it worked. It like it, it responded right. to that. So that's that's I think something we can also do with reality. We can look at risks and we can look at you know problems in the world, but then we can actually respond with more intentionality. We can look at war and we can say peace, chill, relax. You know. Let's let's get back into love. We can at least hold that intention. It's it's reality's choice whether it will respond, you know, in alignment with that intention or not. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's a really interesting point because again, we think of a metaphysics. The metaphysical is like, what's the causality of these things? So when you look at, you know, I am here, and uh, 
you know, my intentionality is peace, but then there's uh, something else going on, we can still be the neutral observer and not take it personally in some way without bypassing. Because there's, there's a lot of, you know, talk about, oh, you're bypassing reality. But no, I'm acknowledging this reality is true, but this could also be true. So I think that's the resilience all of us need to learn how to do is this and that can be can be true. It's where our attention goes. So you talked about brain science earlier. And where does the reticular activating system of the brain fit into that. So as you know, that that is part of the brain that actually is its job is to prove and look for evidence in the outer world that our beliefs have evidence to support them. Mm -hmm. So I believe this, therefore, so that's our eyeballs start looking, right? So did, did you learn anything about shifting that in some way? Yeah, I think on a practical level, one of the best ways to, to, to do that is to align with it. Um, align with its job and actually kind of assign it a bit of a different functionality. So it's, it's sort of a prover. You know, it takes our assumptions and it pr yeah. proves them to us. It finds evidence. So if you, you know, are, are thinking, you know, about financial lack, then you'll start noticing, oh, another bill I can't pay. You know, you start noticing, oh, my debt, oh, this, you know, and you start noticing yeah. all, the, all the supporting evidence of that. But what we can do is actually coax our reticular activating system into performing a little differently by preloading it with assumptions and, and such. So one of the ways I like to play around with it is just giving it different models of reality to play with. Like I'll say, you know, this could be a simulation that we're living in, you know, a world like the Matrix. Maybe everything's not quite as real and solid as it seems. And, and then it's kind of like I'm telling my mind, go find evidence of that. Let's, oh see, my God. let's, see, let's see what that's can, like. I have to tell you something. So I did that. So, I, you know, Greg Braden is a dear friend of mine and he talks a lot about- I, I love Greg. Yeah. So, of course, I'm always, you know, peaked on that. So I started playing with that concept saying like, well, you know, what if I'm in a simulation, whatever. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, I wasn't even thinking about that. That was just what I was playing with. And then I was just going about my business. So I had a friend over and all of a sudden I started seeing like this, the edges of my peripheral vision were starting to disintegrate. <laughs> and I was so freaked out. I'm like, oh my God, I'm in an alien board game. <laughs> I'm like, no, no. Uh, but just by saying those things, by by feeding that, making the assumption, oh my gosh, this is such an interesting conversation. <laughs> yep. I, I leaned into that with some experiments, just like uh, I initially started with manifesting money. Um, and the way it started was really small. I used to go, uh, this was maybe around 2004, 2005, something like that. I used to go running every morning, like run a yeah. few, few miles just around my neighborhood, not a commercial area, just a residential area, just running around houses and stuff, you know, near them uh, all around the neighborhood. And I come back. It was how I started my day, just a morning jog. And I noticed like much of the time I'd find a penny or two, you know, during the route. And I'd had this habit of picking them up. And I was like, after doing that for months, um, I kept wondering like, why is it I keep finding pennies but I never find nickels, dimes, and quarters. And how, where objectively are those pennies coming from? Like, why do I keep finding more of them? Are people, are kids dropping them out of their pockets? Are they falling out of cars? Like, how are You're they being replenished? Evidence. Yeah, so I'm like, I'm confused. I'm like, where are these pennies coming from? And then I thought, why don't I ever, like, I never find a nickel or a dime or a quarter, only pennies. That makes no sense. Like, So how did you change it? So what happened is, as I was thinking this, as I was running, after I found a penny or something, I'm like, what is going on here? Where are these pennies coming from? I just got curious about it. And then a little later in that run, maybe a few minutes later, I found a nickel. And I was like, <laughs> whoa. And I thought, wait a minute. 
was that nickel always there and I was missing it and I was only seeing the pennies or did I just manifest that somehow and reality like put it in my simulation just to tease me? Well, here's what happened. In the weeks ahead, I kept finding pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters on the same route I was running for months before. I'm, I'm like, whoa. So I was confused. I was like, is that my reticular activating system? Was, right. it, was it somehow pre-programmed to only see pennies? And now I'm finding all this other stuff <laughs> on the, the same area. How is this happening? And it made me wonder, like, I don't know if I can really explain that just from the reticular activating system. Uh, was it really filtering out other coins? Why would it be doing that? And that, Or is it like reality is messing with me somehow? It's kind of opening up me up to a different kind of experience. So I then started saying, well, why don't I just focus on quarters then and see what happens? And just imagine there's lots of quarters in reality. Well, then eventually the most abundant coin I would find everywhere would be a quarter. I'd find still find pennies and nickels and dimes, but I'd mostly find quarters. Uh, you know, not just while running, but out, you know, going out, I'd be like, oh, there's another quarter. There's another quarter. I just kept finding the spotting quarters. So I was, you know, I was in my first marriage with Aaron at the time. And, you know, I'd come home from my runs and I'd be like, look, I found 32 cents today. Or look, I found, you know, <laughs> 60 cents. Or <laughs> and, she, and she'd be like, yeah, well, what's that doing for our finances? You know? And, and, right. And so, but still. You're a scientist, right? So it, it, it made me curious. It made her curious to kind of play along with it too. So it'd be kind of this game when we were out on dates and stuff. I'd be like, look at all these quarters I'm fighting. Oh, that's <laughs> so, so funny. But I wasn't doing anything for us financially. Well, one time we're sitting at this restaurant and we're chatting about, um, you know, this weird thing that's happening with the coins. And she says, well, you know, why don't we manifest a dollar? You know, it's like, what's like, why don't we upgrade? Right. You know, because if you yeah. were going to pennies from quarters, why don't we go to a dollar? And so I said, all right, I'll hold that intention with you. We're going to manifest a dollar. So we go through the date. And as we're walking back to our car, about eight feet away from our car, just lying in the parking lot is a dollar bill just lying flat on the ground. And we're like, whoa. So did we see that earlier and not notice it? And it got programmed into our reticular activating system. And then that made us set the intention. I don't know. But that led to more experimentation where we started trying to manifest more, you know, more things. I remember we were at, uh, we went on a date at the MGM Casino um, on the Las Vegas Strip, which is just 20, yeah. 20 minutes from where we live. And we decided to try to manifest a free black casino chip, which was, <laughs> which was a hundred bucks. That's a hundred dollars, yeah. you know? So, so we're like, but it's, you know, we want it to be free that it would not be, we'd not, we wouldn't be stealing it from anybody or anything like that, you know? So we go through the date and I find, a couple of quarters and a couple of pennies. <laughs> so I'm up to I'm up to 52 cents, but not really, you know, getting yeah, there. No black coin. So, so we're kind of giving up and we're walking through the shops area back to the parking lot. And right as we're like kind of, you know, about halfway through that area, I see a penny on the ground. And by this time I had Erin trained to see it, you know, see coins. And so she, she saw a penny, a different penny, maybe 10 feet away. And we both go pick up these pennies. And then as I'm looking up, I see this, there's a gift shop right in front of me. And there's a case, a plastic case in front of me filled with black souvenir casino chips. They're, oh not, my God. they're not real. They're just like the, you know, souvenir you kinds. Yeah, you weren't Pacific. <laughs> yeah, but well, get this. So I'm like, oh man, I said, I'm in a real one. <laughs> but so then I thought, well, this is kind of fun. And I want to like remember this experience. So I thought, yeah. I'll go, oh, what the heck? I'll go buy one. So I grab one, I stand in line and they ring it up the register and it comes out, it costs, I didn't even know what the price was. You know, I just, it's not going to be much. It's a piece of plastic, you know. So uh, it comes out to 50 cents plus tax, which was 54 cents. The 52 cents I found earlier, plus the two new pennies we just found, we had the exact right change to buy that souvenir thing. So, and that just led to all kinds of more experiments where we 
manifested $100, $1,000, $10,000. And then when I set this intention to like manifest more, I realized I was kind of hesitant about it. But then some months later, the Hay House book deal comes up and it had the advance, which was in the range of what I was asking for. So that was weird too. Oh, wow. Is it? But you know, it's fascinating because what that proves, I mean, I love these anecdotes. I love, because this is evidence. Yes. I mean, can you empirically do this again in a lab? No. But these are the kind of stories that I hear all the time in my school, in my classes, in my, I mean, it's crazy. And in my own life as well, too. It's just that you have to believe that it could work or at least be open and curious to see, which I find I have less interest in the belief than I do in the curiosity part. Jeez, I wonder, because then you are really hootless about it. Uh, I found that you don't really have to believe it can work. In fact, you don't even have to be that open it can work. What I found really helps is to doubt that it can't work. Right. Just create some doubt. That's a great first. Exactly. Be uncertain because you're not really certain about how reality works. So I always remind myself, I don't know the rules of how it works. And so it doesn't have to obey my expectations. Oh, I love that. So you kind of let yourself off the hook. I I crack open the doorway to possibility with doubt in the old framing. And that, that, that works really well. Fascinating. I because my mind won't my mind won't go to a belief if it doesn't see, you know, evidence of it. It's really hard to try to believe something that you don't already know is true. But you can doubt something you think is true if you've had that experience before. I just remind myself I've been wrong about a lot of things, and humans have been wrong about a lot of things in our history. Yes, they have. Oh. <laughs> we have a, we're we're probably wrong about more things than we're right about. <laughs> that's fascinating, though. I'm gonna I'm actually gonna try that because I, I think that's actually a phenomenal step, especially for people who are brand new at manifesting and creating reality, etc. But this is a fascinating beginning point. Okay, we're gonna take a little break now, and when we come back, we're gonna switch gears and enter into another dimension of the Wooniverse, the tea time after party. So please stay with us. We'll be right back. Thanks for joining us today and welcome back. With us today is leading personal development innovator, blogger, and author, Steve Pavlina. Okay, Steve, we're going to ask you some fun questions. Oh, awesome. And we are joined by our executive producer, Connie Deletti. This, I could have talked to Steve for like two hours. I know we can't, but I mean, I was like, oh my God, he's on a roll. <laughs> Amazing. I want to stay love here it. forever. I love, love We'll have love to it. do it again. Yes. But anyway, Connie, I'm going to start yeah. with the questions, okay? So, um... Steve, if you could have any animal as a pet, but it had to be the size of a mouse, what animal would you choose? Oh, I love bears. Oh, so bear. bear. <laughs> little yeah, bear. Little baby bear. <laughs> I just have a strong affinity to bears. I feel like bears are my, you know, core spirit animal. Bears and eagles. Eagles remind me to soar, but yeah. bears always give me the sense of groundedness and yeah. like protection. You know, it's just doing just doing this kind of work. I'm sure you get this yeah. too. We're exposed to all kinds of stuff. Negative energy yeah, sometimes. Very you know, much feedback, so. criticism, trolling, um, yeah. You know, things like that. Uh, my my ex-wife Erin had a stalker, you know, going I after her. She had to get the she had to get the FBI involved too. So so I always think of the bear as like a symbol of um, you know, protection, yeah. keeping me safe, keeping my energy field clean, um, not letting, you know, negative hooks get into me. Love it. Because that can really corrupt my thinking. So awesome. I love, I love bears. Awesome. Okay, well, you got a little weenie bear. All right, Connie. <laughs> <laughs> Your turn. So I was reading, uh, preparing for this in your extended bio. You mentioned that the actress Lindsay Lohan has a tattoo that is references your work. Oh. Would love to hear the backstory about that. 
Yeah, I wish I knew more about it, but I, I know she okay. <laughs> she was she was into the book Personal Development for Smart People. So oh, she got so cool. she got a triangle tattoo because the pattern in the book is uh, about three core principles: truth, love, and power, and how to combine them into other principles like truth and love combine into oneness. Um, truth and power combine into authority, love and power combine into courage, and then I say all three of them combine into intelligence or wisdom. Um, and so we need to was, redo that you know, book again. That, 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 <laughs> that model of just like the, the triangle of you know those those That's principles. Beautiful. So she got a triangle mm-hmm. tattoo to remind her of that. And I found like her history is getting tattoos that remind her of you know certain core ideas that she wants to physically ground into her body. Oh, that's so that, I found that right. interesting. Amazing. I've never talked to her about it. I did get I learned about it because some tabloid magazine contacted me. Uh, I didn't I didn't talk to them because I didn't want to go into that yeah. kind of energy. But they told me about it, and then I saw it on on Lindsay's blog. Love it. Okay, next question. If you could have a superpower, but it had to be completely useless, what would it be? Oh, a useless superpower. <laughs> hmm. You know, maybe it would be something like, um, like a create napkin power. <laughs> That's amazing, <laughs> actually. <laughs> Useful, a, napkin, yeah. a napkin's pretty versatile. You know, you, you can use it as a tissue in a, a pinch. You can use it as a towel. <laughs> That's pretty useful, uh, though. That's pretty good, though. I use, you can use that it to protect. He's going to yeah. make, <laughs> it's like instant, instant Protect your clothing napkin. during a meal. I don't go. And in fact, if you make enough of them, you can use it as a pillow. <laughs> oh, my God. It is a genius idea. Obviously, not a surprise. Yeah, exactly. That's genius. genius yeah. idea. Yeah. It's, he'll never come up with anything that's useless, Connie. Okay. Yeah. No, <laughs> Your ever. Turn. No, never. Your turn. Of course. Who could be wildly successful in another profession? What would you like to get into? You know, one thing I thought I thought about, this is maybe a bit related, but I always thought it'd be fun to have my own talk show. Oh. You know, not not in a podcast way, but like a, like a television show, like even a traditional style television show and be able to bring on guests. But uh, having a lot of freedom and flexibility and being able mm-hmm. to choose the types of guests and the topics and the depth we talk about and not really have to make it just like short sound bites, but really talk to people about interesting, wild, weird, creative topics. I think that would be fun. Love it. Sounds great. Okay, if you could have any job in the world, but it had to involve a costume, what job would you choose? <laughs> well, that's funny because... Um, <laughs> I've woven that into my current work. So really? for instance, yeah, in um, in October of 2010, I did a Halloween workshop. It was October 29th, 30th, and 31st. So it was a Friday, Saturday, <laughs> Sunday, and the, the third day of the workshop was Halloween. So we invited everybody to wear costumes. I think we had about around 100 people show up to it. Um, and I went as, I, I wore a costume too, so I dressed as Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> So I, so, so I loved it because people were calling me, you know, Jedi master and they're calling me master and (laughs) stuff. And I was like, oh, that's so much fun. (laughs) Um, And then there were other people there, you know, dressed in all kinds of different costumes. And I, it just made me laugh and chuckle a lot of time. Cause I remember at one point, you know, somebody was asking about win-win, you know, like the win-win mindset. And I realized the, the, the person asking was dressed as a vampire. And I'm like, a vampire. (laughs) (laughs) I started busting up laughing. Like this is a vampire asking about win-win. That's Um, hilarious. And, uh, and my ex-wife, Erin, went as a queen. And I'm like, so perfect for her. Um, and then uh, my girlfriend at the time, Rochelle. Who's she now went your wife. As, who's who's now my totally wife. She, awesome. She's awesome. She went as Snow White because uh, she looks oh, nice. a lot like yeah. Snow White. She does, too. She really does. So, 
So that was that was actually something we did, you know, was wearing wearing That's a costume. Amazing. Well, yeah. you already have the right job then. Okay, last question. <laughs> I'm going to ask it. If you could choose a celebrity to be your personal assistant, who would you choose and why? Bradley Cooper. Oh, I love Bradley Cooper. Okay. You tell me why. Yeah. Me too, yeah. Uh, I loved him in the movie Limitless. Yeah. Uh, and so I thought, I want to have a limitless personal assistant, or at least someone who can play wow. a limitless personal assistant. <laughs> 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 so I'm like, you t- t- take your pills yeah. and then go to town. Oh my God, you're <laughs> I want to have a personal assistant who's really, really smart. Oh. Like, He's also fluent in French. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I'd be like, Bradley, learn this, figure this out, edit this. <laughs> um, I and also it. I figured he's probably really extroverted and social. Maybe he's not, but the characters I think he plays tend to be very extroverted and social. Well, that sounds like a great plan. So listen, to learn more about Steve, all of his courses and other offerings, his books, head on over to stevepavlina.com. You're going to find a transcript of this episode, quotes, all the links, and so much more on our show notes page. So go to itwpodcast.com or click the link in this episode's description. This was so much fun. I loved having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Connie. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. So what did we learn today? Oh my God, I learned so much. But you know what the best part was? That we could play with the assumption that if we don't know what reality really is, we don't have to believe in anything. We just have to doubt that the way we think reality works could maybe be not right, but we then can feed ourselves different assumptions and then literally task our reticular activating system of the brain to go show us something different. And really what he was talking about today was all about manifesting and tapping into that shared consciousness and the field, the quantum field. It This was fascinating. I just loved him. Anyway, thank you for listening. I could just go on and on and on. But until next time, I'm Colette Baron-Reed. Be well. Time to share the way we love Become the ones we're dreaming of Inside the Wooniverse is a production of Wooniversal Network Studios. A special thanks to our recording engineer, Chris Dupuy, executive producer, Connie Deletti, story editor, Julie Fink, and audio post-production by Lonnie Carmichael. Original theme music written and performed by Michael Seifert at Summa Recording. Original music Truth Begins is by Colette Baron-Reed and Eric Ross. And all other music is courtesy of APM Music. Keep up to date on episode releases, giveaways, and special offers by signing up for Colette's newsletter at itwpodcast.com forward slash newsletter. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you join us next time for another episode of Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast brought to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine.